Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a bass player and vocalist with more than 2,000 recordings, is considered one of the most recorded bass players in history, Mr. Nathan East. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have probably the most famous bass player of all time, Mr. Nathan East with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. It's an honor. Thank you for having me, but that might be Paul McCartney, though. <laughs> He's pretty famous. Okay, that is true. It might be Paul McCartney. I'm sorry. <laughs> but still. But uh, no, appreciate the, appreciate the nice intro and, uh, and the compliment. Well, can you, for the people who don't know who you are, could you please give a short summary about yourself, like where you went to school, et cetera? Yeah, I went to, I attended the University of California, San Diego, and got a degree in music and then moved to L.A. Um, and have been working in the L.A. studio session scene um, ever since about 1980. Um, and so I'm a recording and touring musician. And I love my life, love playing bass, love my family, and uh, having a pretty good, pretty good time at it. Well, sir, like I said, I, I think you have like the ideal music career as a sessions bass player, and then you have a solo career on top of that. And I first heard of you when I was like 10, and my father was a huge fan of your four-play album, the first one. I heard oh, it so many you. times I could transpose that whole album <laughs> from start to finish. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. Bell Run, I still, Bali Run, I still love to death, so I can't say anything about that. Oh, thank you. So one thing I got to ask you, with your accomplishments and everything, when that came out, the whole thing on smooth jazz versus traditional jazz. Right. Well, I mean, in a way, I don't like to put music in a, in a box, so it ends up it ends up being a, a little tricky, because when we go in to make music and and record, we just say we just play from the heart, you know. So I'm not really, you know, trying to say okay, this is going to go into a certain um, certain pile of, you know, and and so that 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 ends up being up to the listener with whether what they want to really call it. They they could call it rock and roll if they want to, funk, R and B, you know. We've kind of been called everything. <laughs> I agree. And do you think smooth jazz in general helped traditional jazz make a comeback in the 90s at least? Or do you think it was one of the things that led to its downfall? I think uh, maybe a little bit of both. You know, the, just the word jazz is, is kind of like one, again, that can be left up to interpretation. And um, so for some people, it's like, I don't like jazz, and, but they don't know really what, what they're listening to that they didn't like, you know, or, you know, it might be a little bit too progressive for them. So what happens is you just, um, you know, you, again, I, I go play from the heart and, and let people interpret. They can call it what they want to call it and, and it can make them feel which, whatever they, way they want to feel, you know. Understood. Well, with the state of jazz right now, at an all-time low of music sales, Jazz clubs closing all the time. One of my favorite places, Jazz Standard in New York, I don't know if you know it, I'm pretty sure you do, recently announced that it's going to close. So how do you think that's yeah, going to affect, 
huh? Would you say so? That's unlucky. When you hear that, you know, it's 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 very sad. I, I know we spent a lot of time at the Blue Note New York, and I think uh, for for a lot of clubs and a lot of businesses, whether they're jazz or rock and roll or whatever, it's been a tough year. So, um, you know, I, I always try to keep a prayer out for everybody that's trying to keep a business up open during this this uh, very unusual time in our lives. And how do you think that's going to affect more upcoming artists? If there's less well, places for them people, to play? Yeah, I, I think um, artists have always managed to, to get through whatever tough times there are. And um, if um, I always say, you know, if you have it in your heart and if you have the, uh, the stomach for it, you know, you can get through pretty much anything. Uh, people, people got through the, the Great Depression and... Um, you know, times that actually have been harder than than this. And so, um, again, I, I try to be as supportive as I can and hope that uh, people will be able to uh, manage manage through this. And as you, big guy in the music scene, how has it affected you directly? Well, 2020, um, all my tours that I had booked, um, and there were extensive touring throughout Europe and um I had something booked in Russia. I had some solo artist uh, engagements booked uh, on uh, East Coast, West Coast. And, and so, you know, just as as the months started coming in, you know, things just started getting canceled as we got closer to the days. And um, so, you know, that was it. Like the, the fountain of gigs just kind of was shut off. And so... Uh, 2020 has been a, a year of, of great reflection and and kind of trying to work out how to deal with plan B, you know, because you know, everybody wakes up with a plan A in mind, but it's it's the plan B that really attests to see what you're made of. And have you been recording anything during this whole pandemic? You don't have to say yes. the projects itself, but you have? Yes, I, I've, I've been recording. I do um, I do have my own studio, which, which is a blessing because... Um, people are have been sending me tracks and just I've been playing remotely on them. So so that's been able to uh, kind of keep me, uh, you know, in making music and, and staying with my gear and still being able to write and produce music. So, um, you know, having having my own studio really, really kind of saved me this year. OK, I mean, hopefully you're able to. Continue. I don't know the projects. I understand that whole situation, but has the, how should I say, has the request in general increased? You know, lately it's increased because a lot of people, you know, now once they kind of figure out what's going on, they they still have to, you know, go on with the project. So um, people have been, you know, going in remotely to wherever they are um, this week. Um, one of the songs I recorded remotely in my studio is actually, I think it's number one on Billboard now on the um, jazz charts. It's Dave Cause and, and Dave Sanborn, a song called Side by Side. And um, every everything on that record, David, uh, w- was remotely recorded. So it was he, he calls it kind of like his, his pandemic project, you know. Okay. And um, the album title is A New Day, and it's it's kind of, you know, dealing with, how you, you know, how you deal with this pandemic. But um, again, you know, the luxury of having your own space where you can record is um, is really a blessing these days because, um, 
that that's kind of kept me going where people people can send me tracks that I can get back to them. Understood. So you think this is going to be a forever thing or do you think the traditional recording is going to come back? Yeah, I don't think it'll be forever. Um, traditional life as, as we knew it, I don't think is ever going to get back to exactly that. It'll be, it'll be a kind of a newer type of normal. Um, we still have, you know, a little bit of ways to go to figure out, you know, the whole situation with contact with other people and how that's going to work. And, you know, music obviously is a, is a contact sport, <laughs> you know, that involves, you know, not only playing with other musicians, but the audience participation and audiences showing up. So um, we're going to have to kind of see how that's going to play out, whether people are going to be comfortable come, you know, sitting in large crowds of people. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see some people just don't mind, they don't care. And then others are very freaked out about it all. So I think somewhere in between is where we're going to end up. Understood. So here's something that I always question because when I was younger, it was one of those taboo questions to ask my teachers. Do people look down on studio musicians versus live artists in your world? Because you're definitely far more in it than I ever have been. Well, so, sometimes there's a, not a stigma, but there's a way of like, okay, a studio musician might be considered just a studio musician, you know? So uh, other people think that you know, you're you're the real deal if they can go to a theater or an arena or somewhere and see you play live, you know. So, again, I, I try not to put um, our gifts of what we've been blessed with as talent into a box or a bag. You know, if, if you uh, are one of the guys fortunate enough to get called and go in and record, it's one of the most um, exciting things, you know, to ways to present your art, you know, and... and uh, I've, you know, even even when I was very young, I, I was blessed with some really good gigs. I, I was on a lot of the early Barry White records, um, in the studio with him every day making records, and and then along after that, soon after that, Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston and Anita Baker and a lot of people that I'd really um, have admired. And next thing you know, you're in the studio making music with them, and and so um, I, I think it's one of the most exciting careers and then if you're fortunate enough to go out and play live and have the combination of the both that's that's one of the um you know the greatest things ever okay we'll build on that well first of all i want to say the first time i actually saw you perform was in radio city uh when anita baker was given a valentine's day show and she bought hey. you out okay yeah i'll and, never forget that yes. Greg Philly games and, uh, and I were visiting and she brought us out. That was too Fairy much fun. Tales is what you played, one of my favorite on that album. Wow. Yeah, I know. I'm yeah. a huge Anita Baker fan. Like, I know her catalog left and right. So well, it's just like when too. you came out, it just made it that much better. <laughs> well, you know, being with her from the very first note of the very first record, Songstress, and having, you know, a, a wonderful 30-year uh, relationship, it's... it's uh, it's always fun, you know, and, and those are those are definitely magical moments where we're able to come together, not only just in the studio, but live and uh, and bring that music to life. And uh, that was really just a good fun, you know, and Radio City is a great, great venue. And I thought um, I thought that was really, you know, one of the, the most enjoyable Valentine's Day. That was 
easily one of my top five concerts I've ever been to. And I try to go to as many as possible in oh, all dramas awesome. and all fields. And one thing yeah. I give Anita, which I love her for, even though she brought Tyrese out, I'm like, you re-recorded this guy's song and then won a Grammy for it. <laughs> so right. it's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> That's right. So Tyrese yeah. is a good man for that. He takes it like a champion. So, yes. <laughs> he's a champ. I mean, and plus just so talented. I mean, uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful singer. He could have just a career as a, just a singer, but then, you know, his acting career and everything else he's got going on, and it, it makes him one of the, one of the one of the real top top guys in the business. And I gotta ask you, out of all the Anita songs, which one's your favorite? Oh man, now that's that's like saying which which one of your kids is your favorite. <laughs> but <laughs> I, mean, I don't have any kids, but I think every parent has a favorite. They just don't say it. They just don't say it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, boy, there's there's been so many great ones. I I love. Um, and I just heard um, uh, just because the other day on the radio, and I remember recording that at my my studio at my house, putting the bass powder on there. Um, Fairy Tales is another one of those just iconic tunes that that is just so much fun to play. Uh, when we recorded that, I think we went on for about 10, 11 minutes. Yes, <laughs> and, and it just it kept going, going, and she started laughing. Like I said. Nobody wanted to stop. You know, it was like. <laughs> We were having too good a time, and, and I was really surprised he left a lot of that on the record. You know, and it, it ended up being a real long record. And then, um, but um, there's a song too that Gerald Albright played sax on called Good Enough. Um, and I, I love that. It's a very jazzy feel. I mean, but pretty much th there's, there's not too much that Anita can sing that, that you don't fall in love with. I mean, she, everything is, is just such a winner. And I, I mean, I've, I've just loved her. Uh, hanging with her for, you know, wow, more than three decades now. The fact that you opened one of her biggest songs is like, yeah, giving you the best that I got. Like, it oh, starts man. with you. Just saying. Listen, I mean, <laughs> again, that I heard that the other day. You, just, you know, but if you turn on the radio, you, not too much time goes by without hearing an Anita Baker song. But I heard that the other day, and it just took me right back to the to the studio and and what a great love song that is, you know? And, and um, when she says, I'll bet everything on my wedding ring, it's just like, go ahead, girl. Yeah. I seriously, that's like a deep song on that. That's like ideally what someone would want. Yeah. It's, it's really, you know, again, a huge, huge honor to be part of those records. And, and uh, they're, they're all so iconic. It's just, um, it's, it's fun to, watch and, you know her progression and then off that because i mean i'm skipping around the questions i would have loved to ask you but you have a son i've seen your stuff you guys perform together it's amazing I, oh, thank that. You. I hope he continues so he could have a career in the music field thanks yeah Noah east i we were we were just playing until the wee small hours of the morning um this morning doing a there's a charity that asked us to do something for one of their Christmas specials and, and they can't have everybody in the room. So we did it online. And um, so we recorded some songs and we were up, we were up until the middle of the night last night. And I was just thinking to myself how grateful I feel to have a son that, that I can make music with, you know, in, in, in the middle of the night. <laughs> I get it. But isn't that a blessing and a curse too for him? Because it's like, yeah, you say something's wrong. It's like, dang, I can't say anything. And then you turn on the radio and then, yeah, you could be like, I played on that. I played on that. I played on that. 
Well, he's he's very respectful, but I'm very respectful of of his instincts, and he's he's coming turned into one of my fam- favorite musicians in his own right, and I'm just uh, I'm just thrilled at his development and and how much uh, really good instinct that he has for for music. So, uh, you know, as a father, I couldn't be more proud and happy, and I I do hope he uh, becomes recognized as you know for for what his gift is. We had father's sons come on the podcast before, and I'm just saying I'm waiting for the solo album for him. So make sure <laughs> yeah. you hit me up when it comes out. Uh, okay. I'll be sure to hit you up. And uh, in the meantime, I'm trying to recruit him before he gets too big to maybe we could do a duo album. <laughs> nice. And it's bas- no, basically do it uh, with acoustic piano, just like you did on there. Yes. You know. I'll yeah. definitely be checking that out. Okay. Yeah, acoustic, the acoustic piano and bass. I mean, it's one of those um, beautiful combinations, especially in jazz, where uh, you've had like the Bill Evans duo albums or mm-hmm. Keith Jarrett. Or, you know, where piano and bass just is a, is a great combination. I had a chance to do one uh, duo album with Bob James called The New Cool, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a lot of fun too. It's one I gotta check out. Unfortunately, that. Like I said, anyone that knows your whole catalog like that, I gotta, yeah. <laughs> you have what? How many recordings? Do you know the exact number? You know, I'm I'm not sure. The I mean, it's in the thousands range now. You know, thousands but range. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy when you think about it. But I mean, that's if you if you get old enough and live long enough, you know, you, the, you'll have a lot of numbers behind you. You know, and so I I started this fairly early. And uh, so if you if you do the math from 1980 to now, you know, running in and out of studios almost every day. Actually, that's a a lot of songs. Go into that. So how do you get hooked up with Barry White? Yeah, Barry White came to San Diego once where um, I I was in a I was in a band, a local band called Power. And there was a, a Stax review that they had Rufus Thomas and Barry White, a bunch of artists from Stax at the arena and they needed a house band. So we got the call. And when, when Barry heard our house band, um, he hired the entire band to go tour with him. So, um, you know, here I'm the young little 16 year old kid playing the band. Next thing you know, we're getting asked to go play at Madison Square Garden and, and, and the Kennedy Center and the Apollo Theater with Barry White. And, you know, so that's kind of when I, I got the, the bug for playing music and then, um, Later on, when he started, you know, when he would do some recordings, he, he asked me to come in and play bass on him. So, so what was the first one you were on? Were you on? The... I was on Ecstasy when you lay down next to me. Oh, this guy. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of the music around that era. Yeah, it's good fun. So every day you learn something new. Mr. Well, you know, it's... was playing on that song too. <laughs> you you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily know because. I'll never forget after the first record, I brought the the album home and cracked it open, looking looking for the you know to get to see my name on a record, you know. And, and what Barry, his whole idea was, he didn't want anybody to steal his sound, so he didn't put the musicians' names on the record. So there's no real proof that we played on those records, which is sad because a lot of those records were really big records. And um, were you on Love Theme also? I wasn't on Love Theme. That was just a couple years before my time. Um, and I think that was Wilton Felder from the Crusaders. But uh, another great again, one. <laughs> yeah, and, and and another fantastic record. 
uh, Gene Page was the arranger for all those um, albums. So Gene, uh, once Gene, you know, he, he used to call me for all those records. So, um, you know, once once I started playing on those, I was I, I was on a whole slew of them, and it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot from from Barry. And how was touring then versus now? Well, you know, I mean, it was. Um, you know the the venues and things are were still the same. It's just that I'll never forget uh, another thing is when when Barry hired us. You know he put we had to kind of share hotel rooms and the hotels like his hotel would be the the fabulous one and then the one that he put the band in wasn't it wasn't quite as fabulous. You know so you know there you are sharing a room in one of the motel sixes <laughs> so it was a little bit little bit less comfortable than it is these days and uh but in in general it, it was it was just a good fun you know i mean the the general concept of of playing music in front of a, a a big audience in an arena or whatever and everybody having a good time i mean that's that's when i was kind of sold on the fact that this was what i want to do and that's what led you to move to la or were you commuting back and forth i was commuting back and forth at that point but then um, once i finished college and, and got the degree, I, I actually started a master's program and my, one of my uh, professors said, you know, move to LA, make some money and make us proud. <laughs> so, so I took you out of the it. master's program indirectly. Yeah. So I, I, I jumped out, I started it for about a year and then I, I took his advice and moved to LA and, and, uh, never looked back. And ever since I moved, you know, when I moved, there were a few months of, uh, you know, no phone ringing. But then uh, right around 1980, when it started, I found myself working pretty much every day. Wow. Okay. So. Yeah, it was just a. Did college one of those, help one you of those prepare things. for that? Or do you think it didn't really? You know, it's, um, it was one of those things that I, I was glad I did it because it was a, a goal that I set out to accomplish. And I, um, I remember getting a call for a real big tour with John McLaughlin three weeks before I was going to graduate. And um, all my friends were congratulating me and, and then, but when I was trying to figure out if I should take it or finish, you know, three weeks after I've been walking around campus, working hard for, for all those years. And when I called my grandmother, she said, if you don't do but one thing for me, just graduate from college. And then after that, you know, do anything you want. And so I, I stayed in and, and uh, got my degree. And, and I'm glad I did. Okay, because I have a love-hate relationship with music institutes and colleges. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, um, number one, the, the other thing I appreciate about college is that's where I met my wife, you know, when I was, uh, when she came, um, I was a sophomore, she was a freshman, and then, you know, so here we are all these years later, married and children, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, if there's one there's one good thing that I got out of college right off the bat, you know, and then some of my professors I'm still friends with to this day, and they've been like mentors to me. Um, and I've now been able to do a lot of work with the university and, and even um, sitting on one of the boards there for the uh, UC San Diego Foundation. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's something that at the time you're saying, man, this is, this is a pretty hard grind. But uh, I think later on in life, you see where it all comes together, where it's a good move. Okay. So what was the first thing that shocked you about the actual music scene 
versus university? Well, the, the, uh, the music scene, there's so much stuff out there that you don't learn in the university, but you just can't, you know, and, and that has to do with some of the politics of getting along with people and some of the politics of the way the whole thing works. And uh, the only way to really learn that stuff is just to get the experience. So it's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of life lessons um, that are just waiting for you. But for me, I, I, like, I like the fact that I, I was at least prepared. You know, college taught me how to read music and um, some fundamentals of, of uh, music that I think really gave me a good background in um, theory and, and composition and, and performance. So I think it, it primed me for what the, the life that I was going to have. Okay. I'm just can't really argue with you on that on your point of view. My like I said, my thing about universities is some of these people are graduating in the hundreds of thousands in debt. And then the music scene isn't like I could just go perform here and make money. And I think the teaching is super saturated right now. Yeah, I would uh I would tend to agree with you. It was um um I had my fair share of debt. The only good news about the, the student loans that I had to pay back was the interest rate was so low that, um, you know, I could just afford to do it over the many years. And it's not, there's nothing guaranteed. I don't even think if you're a doctor or a lawyer now, there's nothing guaranteed getting out because talk about saturation, you know, you just have so many people that are um, vying for that same position. So you need a little bit of, you need a little bit of luck and you need some some grace and blessings, I think, okay. in, the, in the big picture. I agree, <laughs> 100%. So you get on Lionel Richie's first album, correct, with You Are and all that stuff. You were the primary right. bass player. First of all, another great album. Another <laughs> fantastic record. How did he reach out to you? Yeah, so uh, again, uh, Gene Page, who was the he was the arranger for a lot of those records. Kenny, Kenny Rogers, Lionel Richie, Elton John, uh, the Jacksons, uh, of course, Barry White. So uh, again, once Gene started using me, he was calling me for everything. So I, I owe Gene Page, you know, a, a debt of gratitude for using me on all those records. He, he literally called me for everything. Okay, so... Were you more starstruck when you worked with the Jacksons versus, <laughs> I don't know, who struck you the most? Where it was like the phone call came and you found out you were recording for them. Well, I, I was, um, and and it was, I, I just felt like I was, just had this charm life because, you know, I'd be sitting in there with the Jacksons and it was just cool. And, and a lot of times in the session world, it's a lot calmer than like backstage at a concert or something. Uh, but, you know, everybody's in there and usually just jeans and tennis shoes and there's no real pressure uh, for the artist to have to be um, a diva. You know, they could just be cool and everybody's just, it's a very comfortable environment. So, uh, you know, they are just chilling with the Jacksons. I remember the first session with Dion Warwick, and Johnny Mathis. Yeah, we'll go, we'll start with Dion, then we go to Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like, and these people are lovely people, you know, and he, I've become friends with with all of them over the years as well. Lionel, you know, he's he's one of my one of my dearest friends. He came to my wedding, and um, 
you know, we, we talk all the time and, and I'm just thinking it, it's great to have friends like this. A lot of people are jealous of you, sir. That's what I can say on that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things I feel like I, I came along at a time when there's a lot going on. And, and again, uh, some of the things you learn is just uh, um, how to get your relationships with people together. And for me, relationships are really high up on the priority list, almost more important than, than the actual plane, you know, but I, I remember reading an article with uh, that Quincy Jones wrote where he said, I would rather have a musician that's not as good as the other one, but has a better attitude and doesn't come in as a diva, you know, trying to, you know, trying to be the king of the session, you know, king or queen. So, you know, that got kind of stuck with me, you know, and, and again, people like Quincy Jones, you know, friends for years and years. And it's just, you know, when, when he's on the other end of the phone, that you get that phone call, you know, there's just nothing like it. Yeah, I, that's what I'm... <laughs> you know, it, it, like the I remember producer. the first time he called me to play on um, Off the Wall, I was, uh, I was just leaving to, to go on a tour with Kenny Loggins, and I had to, I, had to, uh, I couldn't take the gig, and, and I, like, that was bumming me out. And uh, fortunately, he, um, he called me when, he, when they went in to do Bad, and so I, I did get to, I did get to go back, you know. But it was like, man, how do you, how do you miss that? You know, timing was everything. So you were thinking about that while performing Kenny Lodge, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and on the bad one, I believe you did only. I can't stop loving you, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. You know your stuff, right there. On fire so yeah. far. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did that. Uh, I just can't stop loving you, and uh, that was a big single around the world. Again, it was the number you know. one song, sir. So you're telling me you came in after Bad. I mean, not after Bad, after Thriller. The biggest selling album of all time. Quincy calls you up to do that song. And you're just like, I worked with Michael Jackson already. Or was it like, <laughs> still like, this is Michael Jackson? Oh, no, this is Michael Jackson. I mean, you're, you're sitting in there knowing that every single note that you play is going to be heard by a billion people, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's like... It's it's a pretty big uh, it's a pretty big chair to to fill. And talking about when you said what's it called that you had a conflicts and you couldn't do that, I also remember Nita Baker saying during that concert like she fought over you with Eric Clapton or something like that. <laughs> oh, that was, you know, and, it, and he he still te teases me about that to this day too. It was, it was just a, a funny thing, you know, because what. What I noticed too is is once the word starts getting spread, and you if, you know if you're fortunate enough to become in demand, then pretty soon at some point there's going to be a little train wreck where two people want you for the same exact dates, you know. And uh, those those are, those are the times when you get to figure out what you're made of, and it's it's um it's very stressful. <laughs> I mean, that's good stress, I think. But you have one of the greatest guitar players of all time wanting you to perform with them. And you have Anita Baker, who was, I believe, super hot at that time when she was talking about that, right? Yeah, that, that is so funny that you would remember that because that's uh, it, it always comes up too. It's one of those random things that's you know you remember things here and there. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like okay, it's funny the things that people remember. Well, 
like I said, man, that is like the dream to be in demand by two music icons, not even legends. Like they are like staples. Yeah, it's 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 pretty uh, it's pretty flattering, I must say. So then another amazing artist you worked with around that time, I believe. Actually, let's ask you about Shaka. Hey, Shaka Khan, come on! <laughs> who who doesn't love Shaka? I saw her uh, before. <laughs> I mean, during SummerSlam, like two years ago. Yeah, well, well, she she uh, you know, and then and then we got to sing between the sheets together on foreplay, which was like that's where we go with that. Like, God. Going, man, again, you know, sitting in there in the studio singing singing with your one of your favorite singers. And, you know, I, I revered her records, too. I used to learn all those songs. And so we, we had a great time. That's the great thing about um, music in, in general is it just brings people together. And um, so if you can imagine all of us in the studio, Bob James and Shaka, Harvey Mason, Lee Rittenauer, you know, we just and, and just kicking it, you know, having a good time. It was very special. So is her voice... Who... Whose voice is more powerful out of the people you worked with? Would you say her? Would you say Anita? Would you say Whitney? Would you say, I don't know who? Because wow. you also worked with Tony. You, yeah. Yeah, you know, Whitney's, Whitney's pretty powerful. But, you know, I think, I think Anita B has, has one of those voices that, like, one note and everybody knows who it is, you know, like, very, very, uh, and, and there's only one Anita Baker, you know. Um... But then again, you know, same could be said for Whitney and Shaka and Beyonce. And, and so, uh, again, I, I kind of feel fortunate that we're all, you know, able. And, and I think God gives everybody their own unique gift. Um, and I never try to compare or, um, you know, one of, one of my things, like I was saying earlier, it's everybody lives in their own lane, you know, and, and so... You know, Stevie Wonder, there's a voice that everybody wants to sound like him, you know. And uh, the work with Aretha, she, again, every singer's favorite singer, so. Okay, um, so Aretha, uh, you know, this is just too much even for me, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm blessed. I, I, start, I start every day on my knees saying, thank you, Lord. <laughs> How was Anita Baker in the studio? Uh, not Anita Baker. I'm sorry, Aretha Franklin in the studio. <laughs> well, no, Aretha. Aretha's a sweetheart. She's uh, and and the last thing we did together was um, a concert at the White House. That was in performance at the White House for a PBS special, and it was Gospel Night. And so it's a lot of gospel artists, and she she closed out the show. And and I'll never forget she she uh, she went down on her knees she was feeling it and then when she went to get up i think her dress was stuck or something so uh <laughs> president obama went and helped aretha franklin up and when we were rehearsing that day in the afternoon he said you know you're having a good day when you go down to your living room and in the afternoon and aretha franklin is sound checking you know <laughs> it's like it's just these stories are unbelievable when you think about it so and, any uh, stand out to you the most well, I mean, playing playing at President Obama's inauguration on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in front of uh, maybe two million people, and on stage was was everybody from you know Beyonce, Mary J, Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock, Bono, James Taylor, 
I mean, it was just like, it was almost like the entire music industry was up there. Herbie Hancock, I mean, and so I was in the house band and I'll never forget, it was only one degree in DC in that, on that January, uh, <laughs> that really cold January afternoon. I think it was the 19th of uh, January, 2009. But, uh, you know, the feeling was just incredible. I. I had my parents' picture on my music stand and my grandparents because they, they wouldn't be alive to see our first black president. But it was just uh, one of those feelings of, of like, wow, this is, this is pretty much it. Um, and so moment, moments like that are standouts when uh, standouts playing the Grammys um, with Daft Punk, with Stevie Wonder, Nile Rodgers, Pharrell. Uh, we were all on stage. Um, you can go to that. Kind of, I'll be the first one to say that. So that's definitely <laughs> your son's is alive then. And oh, yeah. you're performing with the number one song in the country, right? Or the world at the time with Pharrell, who is also a master modern producer. And yeah. it's like, yeah, I play bass for them. <laughs> oh, no, we, that's when I, I became huge to them, you know, when we were riding Get Lucky and we'd hear it on the radio and they, and they just that big smiles on, you know, on their faces. And uh, I think that's when they said, oh, you know, daddy, daddy might be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> it took that moment. Okay. That, well, that, that and Michael Jackson kind of gave him a good indication there that, uh, you know, oh, their dad is pretty cool. <laughs> Obviously, you want to you want to be you want to impress your kids, you know. I mean, I would assume. So, yeah. <laughs> so, composing. What was the first big one that you wrote? Because I know you wrote Easy Lovin'. Oh, yeah, Easy Lover with Phil Collins, Philip Bailey. Yes. Um, that, was, that was definitely, um, um, that, that tune was a blessing. It, it only took about 20 minutes to write okay. the music. And we... <laughs> We demoed it. We demoed it the night, and then said, "Let's listen to the demo the next day and make it." And then when we came to listen the next day, everybody liked the track, and and so uh, that was it. But it was, uh, you know, that it was just an exciting time of life. I, I would go, I'd be driving down the street, and I'd turn on three radio stations, and it would be on all three at the same time. You know, a horrible Amazing. life. I know the horrors, right, sir. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because you know you you come up with these questions and and obviously you you've been you know paying attention and doing some homework looking looking in from the outside you know but from the inside for me it's just like I'm just going to work it's another day at the office but when you know when when we sit here and bring this stuff up in this context it's kind of it's kind of fun to just kind of reflect on wow there's been some really really fun moments. Okay, so you. How was it working with those two, especially if you you banged out the chart in twenty minutes? <laughs> well, those those two were great. They were uh, they they had a mutual respect for each other. Phil Phil Collins was a big Earth, Wind, and Fire fan, and so uh, and and Philip Bailey loved Phil Collins stuff. So when Philip Bailey asked Phil to record to to produce, you know, Phil was over the moon, and and then Phil Bailey and I. Uh, we were friends, and so he he brought me over to London with him to do the project. So uh, again, when you're friends and you're in a comfortable position where you know you're not too nervous, uh, that's a perfect environment for creativity and and to, and to make music. Okay, and 
actually going off that because I know you won a Grammy, not a Grammy also. You also won a MTV award for that. Right. Wow. You, <laughs> answer this for me, okay? MTV, was it a good thing for the music industry or bad? Looking back at it now. Well, when I when I look back, I I don't um I don't doubt that now that you can almost hear music with your eyes and now they use that to tell the story. Um I, I think it was I think it was good. It was um it's controversial whether that messes up the vision in your mind that you have of a, of a particular song once they make a video. Um, you know, then everybody could have their own video in their mind. But at the same time, I think it opened up a whole nother avenue for some people that now, you know, music was more of a visual thing. And even even once once MTV got on board with playing Michael Jackson, yeah. um, then it became a, a vehicle for all the choreography that he did. And then and as you could see, that sparked so much choreography and, and so many other artists, including Janet and and uh, and like that. But you know, at first, Prince and Michael Jackson, you know, they they didn't want to play him because they were black and they they didn't want to scare, you know, America <laughs> off with with black artists. You know, so they put him on maybe at three in the morning. But um, you know, soon they realized, oh man, people like these guys. So. It just gives you an idea how far we've come since, since the '80s, you know. Yeah, that when I found out about that, and I heard Vic James was one of the first people to actually speak out on MTV about that, like not playing his music. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, they they. I mean, it was a, it was a conscious, you know, when they interviewed some of the DJs and some of the pro, pro, producers and program directors that, that literally they they just said, well, you know, we don't want to. We don't want to ruffle any feathers of, of of people in the country that aren't used to seeing black people. You know, so, mm. well, like I said, that would lead us to even a deeper thing. But we're going to try to stay on music. Very deep. Yes, <laughs> but that's a but, but totally worth, different. But worth a mention because that's uh, another thing that people as good as Michael Jackson had to overcome. You know, so mm-hmm. um, Oprah always says that you know excellence is the best deterrent to any of that kind of um, racial bias well michael is definitely probably if not the greatest entertainer of all time one of them easily so i agree on that bar pretty high yes (laughs) uh so my thing that at least like i said i was not alive during the rise and the quote-unquote fall of mtv so my theory of it and what some other people have told me was it became more visual and it started to hurt the artists that didn't fit the image. Hence why we got more poppy songs, less talented singers, quote unquote, whatever that means. And it, then yeah. it became the suppression of the elderly artists. Right. I think uh, all those are very valid points. You know, now it wasn't good enough that if you going to make a record and put all you have into it and make make it the best thing you could be. But now you had to be, you had to look incredible. You had to dance. You had to be young, <laughs> you know. So it kind of put, um, it started to put a little box around, you know, the people that could be shown on TV. Obviously, um, they, they wanted, 
you know, they, they were just going for a beauty. <laughs> and so I think that that um, definitely shaded the way the way people made music. And like you said, you know, pop, poppy influence and maybe take some of the chords out of there and and, uh, and really kind of simplify it. And some some people said it was like dumb it down a little bit so you can get it on MTV. So it's un unfortunate. Um, one of the things I think everything happens for a reason, but, um, you know, I always like to see us progress in the right direction and just, you know, take our talent and, and be encouraged to, um, broaden our talent instead of just kind of whittle it down to the lowest common denominator. Well, do you agree with me when I say the day of the 40 year old making uh, number one single without a previous name is over? N nothing's over, but it's um, it's unfortunate that some of the people that are in charge of making the choices, um, they may be biased toward, you know, okay, if, if they're over 40, then we're not going to look at them or, or listen. So so it's, it's a little bit of a... Um, uh, double-edged sword, but I, I always think that people that are really, really, really deserve to be heard will get their message through and all the, you know, it rises to the top whenever, whenever you're that good. Okay. So what about album sales now? You think that's a thing um, of the past? Yeah, I, I don't, um, first of all, I, I had I I went to go play a record the other an album the other day where I had a CD, and the car didn't have the CD. I didn't have one in my computer, and it was, I couldn't play it. I yeah. couldn't play it, and I thought to myself, you know, this this we've really changed now, and um, it's part of the evolution of of what's been going on, and um, it's nice to see that vinyl is kind of making a little comeback, and people really love vinyl, but. It's it's a stretch now because streaming just has become so easy. So in a song you want to hear, you just stream it. You're a fan of it? Oh, you know. Uh, no. I'm 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 a fan of the I'm a fan of the accessibility mm -hmm. because that means you may reach more ears, but the fact that um the fact that as an industry this this was something that kind of was being supported and then it was like a, a circle, you know, a snowball where the financial aspect of it helped continue to keep it going down the tracks, you know. So, um, you know, now if if you're going to make an album, you know, you have to have somebody justify that budget. <laughs> There's a whole lot of things that have to that have to make sense for the people that are accounting and um you know, the way sales are going right now, it, it's getting harder. The people who are just starting and they want to, you know, they have to make a demo in general or they just want to release a demo as their group. I think that's what's killing them. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, and I, and I think now it's one of those things where the people that are just starting, they have a, they have a challenge, but they also have... Um, you know, I think it's made producers out of a lot of young people because they, 
you can't necessarily afford to hire one of the big producers. And then so you go in and, and try to produce it yourself and you try to learn how to, you know, make, get, get what your ideas are onto some kind of disc or recorded. And then you, you learn about how to market it. And, and next thing you know, you're, uh, you're in the game, you know, but it's still, you know, it's still a lot different than it was back in the day. Back in the day, you know, you, you had a, a million, if you had a hit, you know, you had, you had a certain amount of uh, financial support that went with that. You know, now you have, you have a million streams, you know, but I can't go to, uh, I can't go and say, I, I want that house. I got a million streams. <laughs> you know, you got to have. <laughs> and there are a lot of revenue generated to back it up. They make fractions of a cent on the stream. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that's kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that I got to ask you on. Growing up as learning jazz, one thing that my teachers couldn't stand was Kenny G. Now, I have nothing against the guy. I actually liked his stuff. <laughs> Do you ever think the jazz world looked at you funny for recording with Kenny G? No, I mean, that's, that's again, what I was saying earlier is, is people should just, like, if, if you feel it, then you feel it and love it. And obviously somebody does because he, he plays to, you know, thousands and thousands of people around the world. And um, so, you know, how can you be bad at that? <laughs> you know, now some people, if you don't like it, then you say, okay, I don't like it. And then, then they're not going to force you to go by or go to a concert. Uh, but, you know, he, happen, he happens to be a lovely guy. He's a good friend. And, and I, I'm never, uh, you know, I'm always happy for people that are able to be successful, you know, in, in their, their career. Um, and, you know, whether whether I like them or not, you know, doesn't doesn't have much to do with whether they're going to be successful or not. But I I do appreciate when somebody you know has been able to get their art or craft and and just work it timing right so that they can um, they can do what they love to do and do it for a living, make a great living at it. And so I was always you know I'm always happy for people whether or not I like their music. You know, um, there's a lot of people now that I you know. I go to concerts with my kids and, you know, the place is jam-packed, 25,000 people. And uh, I'm not necessarily a big fan of the song, all the songs, but then I get it. And I love the fact that my kids love these guys. I, I love the fact that there's 25,000 people in the place that's supporting them and buying their records and sweatshirts and hats and T-shirts. And I'm saying, you know what? This, that, that's a blessing for, for anybody, you know. Off the air, you're going to name me one of those artists, okay? Because I'm just curious. And <laughs> okay. for the record, and I know all the people who listen to this are going to hate me, I love Songbird. <laughs> I think it's a great song, okay? Hate me all you want. I, I like his uh, Kenny G stuff, okay? Yeah. No, so, I mean, uh, again, he's, and he does it, he does it from the heart, you know? So um, I, I appreciate, I appreciate it all, you know, and, and, uh, I mean, I, I got friends around the world and country artists and, and um, you know, artists that make, uh, you know, sort of like world music. And, and I'm, I'm just glad because I, I like it all. 
Okay. So let's go into Quincy. Because he is just the man, a, the goat. The goat. Yes. In the pop world, the funk world, the jazz world, etc. He's literally let it all. You, oh yeah. He, he's the godfather. He puts you on. Does he call you or does he do you reach out to him? How did that go? No, you get a call and then there he is. There's Quincy on the other end of the phone. <laughs> oh. Which <Okay>. is amazing. <laughs> And what did he first call you for? The Off the Wall album? He, the Off the Wall was the first thing I got called for. Okay. Sorry about that. No problem, no problem. Stand by. Yes, sir. Apologies, that was my, my dog, Jumper, who uh, just jumped on, and he, he jumped on my clip-on mic, and the wire came right off. <laughs> he was trying to get some attention from her brother. <laughs> okay, so let me see if I could clip this back on without... Okay, sorry about that. We're back. <laughs> and um, yeah, so no, Quincy, um, he uh, also, I got called to play on the Juke Joint album, um, which was, uh, he asked me to play on the song um, Birdland and do some of those Jocko licks. And when I came in to do it, he was in the studio recording uh, Sarah Vaughn. And uh, so he calls her in and says, I'll come in, take a break. Nate's going to just record this quick part on, on Birdland, you know. So there I am sitting there, and Sarah Vaughn and Quincy Jones are watching me record my part on Birdland on, on the Juke Joint album. <laughs> Again, pressure. Okay, so here's a hard one for you. As much as I love Quincy, probably my favorite producer of all time is Babyface. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to argue with that, with you on that one, because... Uh, Face, he kind of lives in the studio. Not only does he like program all the parts and sing and come up with all these great background parts, but he's um, and he composes his stuff. He comes out of comes out of nothing. When we were doing um, "Waiting to Exhale," he'd go in on the weekend and get a call. Okay, come in Monday. I got I got four new new tunes ready, you know, and and the tunes would just be. He wrote uh, it on the, which songs did he write on the weekend from that album? Man, uh, not, not the swoop song. Waiting in my room. Uh, shoot, waiting up and sitting up in my room. Yeah, in my room. You, wrote, um, you wrote those on the weekend. He wrote those on the weekend. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like Friday, you say have a good weekend, and Monday he comes back and he says, "Okay, here's the new tunes." I mean, it's crazy. So prolific. Oh and he, man, <laughs> and he gets it done. I know he's he, he, he's he's the goat. I mean, it's hard to even uh, imagine how much talent this guy has. I mean, he, like he, for me, he's, he's right up there with Prince, you know. Okay, so you say Prince is a better songwriter? You know, again, I, I don't like to say better. Okay, sorry about that. For me, there's not a better. Because um, Prince wrote it, a lot it, of people. Because then, yes. then if, if I said to you, who's a better songwriter, Stevie Wonder Prince or or Babyface. I mean, there's no there's no answer for that. It's just like True. all of them write great songs that touch you. You know. I mean, and, the fact uh, he voted on a weekend it made me get more <laughs> respect for him. And I don't know if you saw his verses the other day. Oh, I missed it. Oh, it got to the point where I felt sorry for Teddy. <laughs> because I'm like, he didn't even pull out 
any really of the boys to men. He didn't pull out any of Tony Braxton's stuff. He didn't pull out Beyonce's stuff. He didn't pull out half of his catalog after seven. He didn't pull out. Yeah, I know. Was was that um was that their second one where or was that the first one? <laughs> well, it was what's it called? The first time it didn't work. The second one, it worked, and then his other stuff. What's it called? He had a disconnection to the you know, right, right. And then so he did a solo it. event, which I loved. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. When, when will I see you again? Well, but I mean, you know, you could just take his records, you know, and, and, and yeah. um, for the cool in you. And just, it looks yes, like, that's another, that's a whole other conversation. If I could ever get that guy in here, that would be another four hour conversation. And I'm trying oh, not to make you go that long because I know you have stuff to do. <laughs> no, but it, that, that'd be amazing. Uh, what's it called then on? So you did the Unplug album for him and you did it for Eric Clapton also. Yes. yes Both sir. of them, I say, once again, amazing. But <laughs> what, which one touched you more? Even though I loved when Eric was on Babies and they did, what's it called? Save the World? Or yeah, change, the world change the World and Talk to Me. Uh, yeah, yes. and Talk to Me, which which I love it because it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a hybrid, like Babyface produced Change the World. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then now you become friends and then, okay, Eric, can you play on Talk to Me? I mean, it's just- You just killed that. Yeah. I, I, like, for real. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, that's, yeah. That's the thing about music, you know, it's, it's it just kind of puts us, puts it all, all together. It's like a thread that, that puts all of our hearts together. You can't really see it, but you can feel it. I mean, and by the way, completely random. That bass you used in that, that is, whoever designed that? Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my Yamaha acoustic. Yeah, I, I love the way that thing sounds, and it, it, uh, it records beautifully. It just it's ended up on a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of good music. I recognize it from the video. That's how much it stood out, and I have a nice big subwoofer because my father loves oh, wow. drums and bass, reggae, calypso, so I like to feel the bass. So, yeah. Wow. That's another thing I got to say. <laughs> and Fantastic. well this is well this is great to talk to you because you know it sounds like um uh, you know more about me than i do no i do not <laughs> <laughs> uh so we'll go back to eric so you did you you recorded eric and bb king you were the bass player for that album correct yes sir right in with the king yeah uh i do not know what to say on that that's like another dream come true yeah how was for me that? too. How was that? You know, the week the week before we actually went into the studio to make it um, was like a week of pre-production and going over the songs. So they asked me to just come in and uh, like play and help out with the arrangements and just kind of sit, sit in there and play. So, so literally it was just me, B.B. King and Eric Clapton in the studio in, in a room just like going over songs. And it was unbelievable. It was like... <laughs> This was before Joe Sample or anybody else came in. And, um, you know, I just, again, it was one of those pinch me moments where I'm saying, you know what, this is, this is it. I love my life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's one of them that's, well, what stood out the most for that? Well, I mean, again, everything is a standout. I, I loved the way they had reverence for each other. I mean, it was like, it was almost like a, 
who's going to take a solo? Well, you could take the solo. You take the first. Well, no, you take the first solo. Well, no, you have it. You know, and it was like, it was a couple of weeks of just these two very reverent guys, gentlemen, and um, it was a, it was a magical time. I'll, I'll never forget my my kids were just babies, and I took them in to meet BB and and uh, my twins, and he he sat them. On each one on one knee, and he made these rings out of a, a dollar bill, you know. So he put them on their little fingers, and so when we got home and we looked at the rings, they were each made out of hundred dollar bills. <laughs> it was like, come on! Oh, well, once again, he's the king, BB King. So yeah, he's the king. <laughs> and uh, you know, so every time I'd call him and talk to me, hey, Nate, how are my twins doing? You know, he was just the, the sweetest man you ever want to meet. So, and talk about stories. I mean, he had stories upon stories. And, uh, willing to share one? Come on, come on, give us one. Oh no! Well, he, you know, he he had a bus that that he uh, that he toured on. You know, so basically, you know, he had a couple of good good bus stories, um, but some of them I can't really repeat. <laughs> I got you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so. Working with those two legends at the same time or the Elton John, Stevie Wonder? Oh, man. I, I tell you, all, all, of it is, all of it is really, really special and magic. When I, when I stop, like, like again, in, in an interview like this where, where you bring all of this up, you know, th these are just me going to work. But... On those days, I'm saying to myself, oh, man, this is great that I'm playing with Stevie Wonder. Elton is another just funny, nice guy, great music. And, and you go in with these guys and your game just has to be up because they're, they're just so good. And, and a lot of times in a recording situation, you know, you, you, you better get it like one of the earlier takes, first, second take, because they're done after that, you know. Oh, they're the one and done type of group. Okay, kind of one and done. You know, it's it's uh, when the song is really good and baked in. You know, they everybody kind of knows it, so you just get in there and get her done and and uh, do your best and leave the rest. Okay, so is Stevie more interesting to work with? Because from the interviews I know of him or seen of him, he just looks like a character. It seems like a character, not in a bad yes, way. Well, Stevie, Stevie's fantastic. He he called me one Friday. I was in my studio, and he's, it was about 6 o'clock. He said, Nate, what are you doing? Oh, man, just working on some music. You free around 8 o'clock? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And he said, okay, tell you what, I'm going to call you around 8. And then uh, we're going to go in the studio a little later. Okay, cool. And I'm sitting there looking at the phone, 8 o'clock, 9, 10. And um, two, two Fridays later, <laughs> okay, you ready? <laughs> it was like... Okay, yeah, man, ready. And he said, okay, uh, can you meet me at 11? Yep. And then, uh, so I went down to the, went down to the studio, Wonder Love Studios, and uh, I got there early, 10 o'clock, so I'm there. 11 shows up, still no Stevie, 12, <laughs> 1, 2 o'clock, Stevie comes rolling in, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and here we are making the, making the record like 4 a.m. in the morning. And uh, one of the best days of my life. Okay. Now this one has nothing to do with jazz, but I'm a huge Journey fan. So Steve Perry releases an album out of nowhere. I think it was like first one after 25 years. 
I right. look at the credits and guess who's the bass player? You know what? It, it, <laughs> I'm a big Journey fan too, and I'm a big Steve Perry fan. And so Steve you know Perry when fan. he when he called me to say, hey, "Can you actually Steve Ferroni uh, had played drums on it and and recommended me?" <laughs> and uh, he said, "Yeah, Steve. Steve uh, said I should call you. Could you able to come?" Like, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we spent some time in his studio, beautiful studio, and um, the guy is is one of the greatest voices on the planet. Yeah, like I said, man, uh, you're living the dream. You still yeah, living, living it? the dream, and 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 again, I I don't, uh, you know, I kind of don't differentiate whether it's something that's jazz or rock or funk or you know, I just. If it's good music and I love it, I'm just always glad to be there. Okay, so I'll ask you about one more artist and then we'll try to wrap it up. Because like I said, if not, we would be here for four hours just talking <laughs> about you and all the artists that you perform with. So actually, that's a hard one. What should I say? Uh, which one do you want to tell us more about? Daft Punk, Toto, or... Kirby Hancock. Wow. Even wow. All of those. I'll, get, I'll give you a little, a quick abbreviated one on each one of them. Okay. Um, because uh, Daft Punk, you know, need we say more. They, these guys were incredible. That that song, Get Lucky, and that record at Random Access Memories. Uh, very monumental album, and, and I was happy to be involved. And, and we did about a week in the studio Get Lucky was one of those songs we actually recorded, but when they went and took it to New York and Nile Rodgers put his funk on it, <clears throat> um, mm -hmm. I said, I want to have another go at the bass part, you know? And, and so I did my impersonation of Bernard Edwards' chic kind of vibe, and that ended up being what the bass part on the record. And, and uh, so it was one of those things I was glad I got a second, second crack at that song. Um, but they're great, and, and I was taking pictures in the studio and I went to go post this. Oh no, don't post! Nobody knows what we look like, you know, because they always have the, they always have the robots on. So okay, so that's my my Daft Punk sir Herbie. I was at the car wash and I I get a call from him and he says, "Man, I'm getting ready to go on tour and I'd love for you to come." And I'm going, "Dude, when do we leave?" You know, <laughs> and so <laughs> and we went all over Europe and and he is the most amazing. Like and every single night it's different. You know he. He he wants it to be different, so he he doesn't want you to play exactly what you played the night before, even if it got the biggest applause, you know. And, and so, he he was really one of those players where you play with him, and it influences you so much to think outside the box and not just do uh, the same thing or anything regular. So I mean, um, Herbie, ever since the Headhunter days and before, I I've just been a big fan, you know. Um, and so uh, and yet again. One of the nicest guys you ever want to meet, dear friend. Toto, those are all my buddies um, from San Fernando Valley in, in L.A. here. Where um, When we did the, one of the first times I worked with them was on the uh, Randy Newman album, where the song I Love L.A., and we were in there for a couple of weeks and camped out, and so I got to become friends with them. And, and when they went to uh, go on tour in 2010 to help Mike Percaro, who was... Uh, bass player with with ALS and they wanted to help with his medical expenses so yeah of course guys and and uh we we went and had a great time and 
you know, these songs like Africa and stuff, I mean, you play them all over the world and people know the lyrics, they know the songs. And in Europe, you know, Toto, they're as big as Sting or Elton John or anybody in the crowd, 35, yeah. 40,000 people come That's out. Another to guy see I forgot guys. to mention, Sting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sting. <laughs> another guy. And Great Brian guy. McKnight. That's another one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, it, it's, it's too much fun. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's one of those lives where I really, you know, have to stop sometimes and just say, Lord, thank you. <laughs> and uh, that, that's pretty much where I live. Okay. So, even though I love that funk, I told you about already, one of my favorite workout songs, believe it or not, killer bass line, <laughs> everything. It gets me hyped. Oh, cool. If you were to do your ideal dream project, what would it be? Ooh, nice. Wow. Budget, not an issue. Yamaha <laughs> or Sony or whoever just gives you a credit card says do it. Just do it. Just do it. Wow. That's a fantastic question. You know, I've, I've always wanted to, uh, I've always wanted to do something with Pat Metheny. He's, he's one of my, one of my heroes. I feel like the guy's music has been a big soundtrack to my life, you know? And, uh, so I think, I think he would be, he would be the guitar player. And, um, man, I'd have to think about that one because I kind of had a version of that on my on my two solo albums where I just called all my friends in and made the music that I've been wanting to make for a long time, you know. So, um, you know, I had you know, literally a lot of the people that I end up playing with. Uh, Ricky Lawson, Bless His Soul, he, he played drums and he was just, I listened to those tunes and just hear the spirit that he brought to that music, you know. And... Um, uh, but it's but it's all my it's all my friends you know and, and Michael McDonald came in and came in and sang you know so I'd probably just do the same thing where I just you know get a list of all the people that I've wanted to work with and 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 play and sing and 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 they would be in there. Okay. So, any it's new a fantastic question? <laughs> no, I try. Any new and modern artists that stand out to you? Jacob Collier. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, Corey Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, you know, I've been, it's funny because Esperanza Spalding, I've, I've been. That's my wife. Listening. She just don't know it yet. Okay. <laughs> she didn't she didn't get the memo yet. No. She's fantastic. Yeah. Well, it, it's hard to, it's hard to look at her. With it. Here's my dog climbing on me again. Come on, get down. <laughs> it's, it's hard to. Not fall in love with her when you when you see her amazing talent. I met her at the Village Vanguard. Of course, she ain't gonna remember me, and I was like cheesing. Like I'm not gonna lie. Oh no, she she's in me. We 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 worked at the uh, we played at the White House together on one of those one of those shows, and and um, you know even President Obama was 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 looking at her with <laughs> with the big eyes, you know. My man, high five to him. My man. <laughs> So, because he's a music lover, you know, so he, mm-hmm. you know, he even commented, he said, you know, when some of you kids, you may grow up to be an Esperanza Spalding. And I thought, here, the president of the United States is is speaking the name of one of the top, top artists, you know. And um, I just I just love that music is is this um, 
this kind of invisible power that brings us all together. And, and on a daily basis, it just, it makes me um, excited about getting up in the morning and what, what the uh, potential lies ahead. By the way, there's a, there's a youngster named Justin Lee Schultz, and he plays everything, um, okay. bass, guitar, keyboards, and he's just, I think he's only 13 now, but just that kind of genius to me is just, it's just an example that God has touched this guy, you know. And um, he just okay. came out with a record, and now, it now it's climbing, climbing the charts. So, uh, yeah, lots of Do you know what it's called? Good music. What's that? What's the album called? It's called, um, I think it's called Groove, Groove Kid, if I'm not mistaken. I did the, I did the voiceover for the, for the commercial, but I, I forgot what the, uh, yeah, I think it's called Groove Kid. Okay. I'll look that up later. No, that's Don't good. Hold me to it, but it, um, he, but extremely talented, extremely gifted. Okay. And before you go, we normally like to give a shout out, show our respects to artists who came before us. Now you're in that weird limbo that you played with like practically everyone, and we're not <laughs> trying to put anyone on blast. So I'm just going to tell you an instrument, and you tell me who would be one of the first people you call. Fair. Fair. Okay. On trumpet, who would you call? Miles Davis. I can't argue that. On saxophone, <laughs> who would you call? Um, Cannonball Adderley. Okay, you're on fire on there. <laughs> on drums, who would you call? Um, Jeff Picaro. Really? I thought you would say Billy. You know, there, there's... There's there's really Billy Cobham. It, it, he, was, he was one of the first guys that... that referred me to a big gig with uh, John McLaughlin. And uh, it's hard to, it's, like, again, it's hard to, to pick just one because um, there's, there's Tony, there's... I just Andy. thought he would fit your style, boy, that's all. <laughs> yeah, well, he, again, yeah. Jeff, the reason I say Jeff is because we had so much fun. We played on so many records, and I used to just say he'd, if, if you had to handcuff yourself to one drummer, uh, <laughs> he'd have to be the guy. <laughs> Okay, yeah. and again, when you're when you're casting for for a particular song or music, then you know there's there's nine different guys you could, you'd say, oh, this guy would be perfect for this, and this guy would be perfect for that. You know, um, Steve Ferroni's in my band. You know, and we tour around the world, um, and then I'm in foreplay with Harvey Mason. You know, and uh, he's you know played on more more records I think than anybody. And um, so, you know, and then John Robinson, he, he calls me his wife. I call him my wife because we see each other more than we see our wives, you know, <laughs> back in the day, especially. And uh, Vinny Caliuda, I mean, there's so many great. And, and again, Ricky Lawson was was um, was my hero, you know. Okay. So on piano, keys, who would you have? Oh, man. Again, um, there's so many, so many good calls, but uh, Greg Fillingains. Okay. Guitar, who would you have? I'd have to say Pat Metheny. Hmm. Okay. Can't argue <laughs> that one, too. Not what I was going to guess, but okay. On vocals. Who would, you, who would you have guessed? I would say Eric, maybe Carlos Santana, maybe BB King. I don't know. 
it, you know, again, depending on the song. Because, like, when I, when I recorded um, Can't Find My Way Home, guess who I called to play guitar? Brother Clapton. And he came, he came and did an incredible job. Uh, Michael Thompson is also in my band. He's, he's one of the guys that we've done a million sessions together. <clears throat> and uh, so, uh, yeah, just uh, it, it, it actually depends on how you're going to cast a particular song, you know. So if it's a funk tune, um, you know, you, you may not call Tony Williams for the for a funk song. <laughs> you know, it's just, that's fair. Yes. OK. You know what I'm saying? But for a completely killing, swinging jazz, he'd be the first guy. <clears throat> so, uh, okay. yeah, that's, that's what I mean about, you know, you cast different people for different songs. All right. On vocals, who would you have? Oh, man. Incredible, incredible question. Um, but um, depending on the song, my girl Anita Baker can sing anything. Um, and then Natalie Cole. Natalie, yes, that's another Love talented. me some Natalie. You know, of course, Aretha, what are you going to say? <laughs> it just ends up being, you so, know, what, what flavor do you like? I got you. <laughs> and probably the hardest one, because you won't be playing, who would you have play bass? You know, Marcus Miller, Abraham Laboreal. You know, Rocco from Tower of Power, who just passed away. You know, Jocko Pastorius, Ron Carter, Ray Brown, Chuck Rainey, <laughs> James Jamerson. I mean, it's just like my my base list, you know, Verdi and White. I put and those all, in like the top 10 and you're in the top 10. So when you say someone like, right, uh, come on, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, all those guys I just named, I, I revere, you know, Pino Palladino, one of my faves, you know, then... And um, Chuck Rainey, I used to just buy anything, anything that he was on, I would buy. So he's your favorite? Yeah, he's, he's I got to say, he's, he's one of my favorites. But I, again, I have so many, and it would just depend, you know, like if you had a, everything is song by song as far as I'm concerned, you know. And so, like, if you have a certain song, you say, oh, man. Chuck Rainey would be perfect for this, you know. And um, so uh, that's another yeah. whole thing. Because then I would ask you, like, have you ever submitted to another bass player, like, say that this person is more suited than me? You know, I I was asked to uh, I was asked to overdub a part over James Jameson way back in the day, and then um, that was. You, you know, sometimes you get asked for whatever reason, the, the part, the sound, or, you know, whatever. It wasn't exactly what they wanted. But I couldn't do it. I had to decline that one because it was James Jameson, my hero, you know. So, so uh, you know, I'd always say he, he would be better. <laughs> He'd be better on the song than I would be. Matter of fact, when I'm playing, you know, a lot of times I'm thinking, what would James Jameson do right now? And um, Okay. No, yeah. I'm just saying. So, sir, please tell the people how to reach you, your social media, your website, et cetera. Yeah, uh, NathanEast.com is where the website is. 
Uh, NathanEastBase.com is where my online school is, through ArtistWorks.com. And then um, I'm on IG and, uh, and Twitter and Facebook and all of those just under my own name at Nathan East. So uh, um, the fun thing about all that now is just, uh, you know, being able to just uh, hang out and, and uh, chat with friends from around the world. It's a, I have a lot of fun with it. Well, sir, thank you for coming on again. It means a lot. I appreciate it more than I could say. Well, thank you for uh, having me and uh, keep on doing what you're doing. I think, uh, I think the world needs to uh, have more people like you that bring us all together. Thank you, sir. It means a lot. <laughs> and everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good night. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>